All right, uh, let's try to cap this at one hour. It's 12.43 a.m. right now. Yeah, Eugene got the short end of the stick. Though not really, yeah. because he's traveling, and that's why. When you're traveling, you don't know how the internet's going to be. Well, I double-checked with you if you were sure you wanted to do something past midnight. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Here um, we go. Eugene on very few hours of sleep past midnight. Let's find out what the quality of this podcast is going to be. I think be. it'll be fine. I think I'm I'm professional enough to amp myself up. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. My subject is a two-hitter. We both have two-hitters today, in a way. Oh, God. My two-hitter, the first part is, the most successful people are not the most talented, just the luckiest. And then the second part is going to be an exploration of why rich people don't stop working. The first part is from the MIT Technology Review, and it's an essay about a study conducted by Alessandro Pluccino and a team of people at the University of Catania in Italy. The study that they did revolved around making a computer model of human talent and luck and to observe the ways people in the simulation take advantage of opportunities. And the point of running these simulations was to show whether the resulting wealth of individuals correlates to their talent or correlates to something else. Some context, the distribution of wealth follows this well-known pattern of the 80-20 rule, which is 80% of wealth is owned by 20% of people. In fact, a report last year showed that just eight men had a total wealth equivalent of the world's poorest 3.8 billion people. That's like the second sentence of this essay, and I just had to stop there. Yeah. Because it's totally nuts. I still cannot fully wrap my head around this fact. So what I, I was thinking, like, maybe to start each of our topics before we jump in, yeah. would it be helpful if we, if we start immediately with, like, why is this interesting to you? Mm. Or do you think that it's not enough context because you need to explain it? No, I don't think it's enough context because you and I both know the background, but the other people don't. Okay. The people listening don't know the story yet. In light of that, you know, a lot of us will ask ourselves, why is it that so few people are wealthy? And we want to believe that we live in this meritocracy where people who are talented and intelligent and hardworking wind up with greater wealth. But it's shown that wealth distribution follows a power law, meaning it's, meaning it's exponential, whereas human skills, talent, intelligence, effort are averagely distributed. And I really liked what they said in this article where they said, you know, no one has an IQ of 10,000 and it's not possible for them to work billions of hours more than the other person. But yet there are folks with billions more dollars. Okay. So now back to that study conducted by Pluccino and his team at the University of Catania. 
they ran this model and essentially the model kept showing that the wealthiest individuals are the luckiest. So it doesn't match up with their talent or skills. It simply matches up with luck, which kind of drives me crazy. Why does it drive you crazy though? And I guess that's why I picked this subject because like talking about rich people and like how they wind up being rich is just kind of infuriating. I don't know. I guess, I guess, first of all, it should make me happy because it really truly dismantles the idea of meritocracy, right? So, like, Jeff Bezos can't say, and I don't even know that he says this, but just as an example, a billionaire can't say, oh, I deserve to be a billionaire because I am just so much more intelligent and hardworking and I never sleep, etc. Because that's just not true. This billionaire was on the most part just lucky repeatedly throughout mm -hmm. their life. So I guess that should make me happy in the sense that like the meritocracy doesn't exist and it's really luck. And so I'm equally as intelligent and you as well. Like you and I are both equally as intelligent as the billionaires. But I guess it's infuriating because it nobody believes this to be true. I mean, my, like, my thing is this. The world doesn't operate on the idea that it's just luck. The reason this infuriates you is because your belief is that more money is the enabler of happiness or what is it? Or is it respect? Like, I'm trying to understand uh, your perspective around that. Well, no, I mean, there's like, I'm fine, right? With the amount of money I have, but there's 3.8 billion people. You're more infuriated about the general landscape. Wealth disparity. Okay. Sorry, yeah. I just want to double check because I was kind of confused. Yeah. No, good point. I'm not personally wronged, okay, yeah. by this study. I'm not, I don't personally have a lot of skin in the game because I think of myself as extremely comfortable and I have a roof and I have food and I'll, I'll never have to starve, okay? Like, I just know that and I'm very lucky as well. I'm also lucky and I see that, but it, it, you know, there's still a lot of the conversation around um, why poor people aren't wealthier being, oh, they just need to work harder. You know that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Like pe people say that about poor people that, oh, they don't need more government handouts. They just need to like apply themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and it turns out, according to the scientific study, that that's not even true. I mean, like, again, I'm sure there's been other studies as well, but like this new one contributes to that, like, um, sorry, this counters that narrative again, but I know for sure that like, it won't change the popular story yeah. about wealth. Yeah. And it, uh, one more thing is that Placino and his team, they used their model to explore the results of funding research. And so there's like three possibilities. Okay. You can give research funding distributed equally to everyone, to all scientists. You can distribute at random to a subset, or you can give preferentially to those who have been most successful in the past. And which do you think gets the best results? If, you're, if the goal is to get new scientific discovery. I would say that you would give it not at random, but everyone equally. And that is correct. Yeah. According to Platina's model, the best results for new scientific discovery, okay, like as in everyone benefits from this, is giving funding equally among all researchers. You want to know my thought process behind that? 
Yeah, go for I was it. Thinking it from the context of sports because there are sports out there that generally require a certain socioeconomic background, right? Tennis, golf, etc. And I think that if you look at it from that perspective, it's like you don't really access the whole talent pool versus, you know, let's say a sport like football, like soccer, or a sport like basketball that accesses a comparatively larger talent pool. So that mm. that itself is sort of a, what I was thinking anyways, because preferential treatment, aka the right socioeconomic status, that to me is, actually, this is probably even a better example, and it's it's kind of funny we're using football in this context, but the United States, most people would agree, is a pretty sports sports heavy country right but mm-hmm. despite that like they still haven't been able to be successful at soccer and of course yes there's other reasons men's soccer men's soccer yes of course there's a lot of reasons why it could be that uh basketball is more popular hockey is more popular whatever all these other sports are more popular so the pecking order for soccer is further down also soccer in the united states is typically seen as kind of a rich semi-rich affluent type sport like you need to be of some sort of means for you to progress through the ranks whether you go play in academies mm. or have the right coaching etc so that was my thought process behind it versus oh. versus let's say in south america where like and this is a whole other can of worms but generally speaking people look at players as an opportunity for you to develop and make money off of so if you're like yeah 12 years that's old that's like a whole other yeah. conversation but it's more like they about like aspirational careers yeah it's basically along the lines of they they have access to a much broader talent pool not just the talent pool that has money to pay i mean we've talked about universal basic income before on this podcast and the fact that Placino's model came out as saying you should give the research funding equally distributed to all scientists is like the concept behind universal basic income that that results in the best work that is good for society as a whole. Yeah, so the other, the second part of this conversation is tangentially related. It's because it's about the hyper-wealthy. Tangentially? Yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Just like patting ourselves on the back for good words. Tangentially related because it's about the hyper-wealthy It's a bit of an oddball article, if I'm honest. It's from the New York Times, and it's really kind of this like amalgamation of quotes and studies about the hyper-wealthy. I'm going to preface this to say my interest in doing part B, the second part, is because I suspect that billionaires and their habits subconsciously affect the rest of us. I'm not actually really invested in, okay, like part of this article talks about how billionaires feel really lonely. I am not personally very invested in whether billionaires suffer from loneliness. I'm sorry. I just don't have great amounts of empathy there. The reason I picked this part to follow up instead of just doing half of this is because I think, and I don't know if you feel the same way. I think that we do subconsciously look at billionaires as examples of how to lead our lives or like that that affects the cultural mindset. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think there's a lot of nuance there that I don't want to misinterpret. Yeah. Okay. So I'll take an example from from the article. So part of it, they talk about right now, stateside, okay, 
in the States, they're still experiencing this really top-heavy economic boom, greatest wealth disparity since the 1980s, okay? And we've hit this point where people, presidential candidates are saying billionaires shouldn't exist. Billionaires themselves are saying that they should not exist. It's not right that they have this much money. And yet, billionaires steep keep accruing more wealth, okay? So the article talks about why are billionaires not satisfied with what they have? For example, they work many more hours. Tim Cook famously says he wakes up at 3.45 a.m. And they continue diversifying. So Lady Gaga, for example, does music and movies and cosmetics. And that's what I'm saying is that maybe I don't very consciously say, oh, I admire Tim Cook and I admire Lady Gaga and I want to be like these people, but I think their habits of living have trickled down to how the rest of us think of work and making money. And and those two examples, right? Like working many hours, I should wake up earlier and earlier to like get a head start. Maybe I need to diversify. I need to not just do design, but to do voice acting and make products and sell t-shirts. Even if you don't have a billionaire as like your role model, the habits of the hyper wealthy wind up influencing the rest of us. Yeah. What do you think? I agree. I agree. So this this is actually now that I, you've uh, you've presented as such, I think there's a lot of validity to that. Yeah, and that's how kind I was reading this article because I was like, why do I care? If so, was this like something? <laughs> is this something that you came up on your own, or is this something that was hinted at? in either article um i mean it might be hinted at i mean it sounds weird to be like i came up with this thought on my own but i think it is like an aside to reading it like that's the context i was in when i was reading the article the article itself is more like here are all of these things about billionaires and why they act the way they do but i was kind of like well why do i care what motivates the billionaire do you know what i mean yeah like I already know that capitalism is bad. Why should I really dig into like the fine details of the billionaire psychology? I think late stage capitalism is bad. I don't know if ah, you know what? Sorry, this is this is something that I I I don't have a. uh... No, I apologize. I apologize. I kind of threw that out there. What what I mean to say? What I mean to say is that I had to find like a point of view from where I stand as a non billionaire as to why I should care about the billionaire perspective. Yeah. Okay. And so like a little bit more from this article that I think is interesting is they found in a Harvard survey of 4,000 millionaires that people worth $8 million or more were not happier than those worth $1 million. And the reason they give for this is that people are mostly satisfied in comparison to those around them. So these ultra rich people, they kind of like start hanging out with richer and richer people. And so that's like keeps them unhappy. And this was kind of illuminating to me. turns out that nearly 20% of ultra high net worth individuals live in 10 cities. And guess which city is number one? Hong Kong. Yep. Yeah, that seems Hong Kong has by far the highest density of ultra wealthy individuals with 1,364 for every million adults. I believe that. And everyone, every other city trails behind us. And so this was kind of illuminating to me. I was like, oh. You know what's interesting is that Hong Kong people generally are are not very happy, like the the happiness index. 
But it makes so much sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Because we're all surrounded by increasingly rich people, including the ultra-rich themselves. The ultra-rich... No one's happy. Worth, like, let's say... No one's happy. Yeah. <laughs> the ones who are, who are worth $1 million, they're around those who are worth $8 million, And so they're unhappy. And then the ones worth $8 million are around those worth like $25 million, et cetera. And like you and me, I don't even know what our net worths are. We are also, you know, in the mix with the people, whatever, right I, above us. Actually, I shared this article in the Macon's Slack community. And to that same point, I said that this band of affluence exists in multiple tiers, right? Let's say that you are amongst your friends. I'm just using any number, right? And you guys are college students and one guy makes you know, $25,000 a year for whatever reason. He has like some side hustle and you only make $10,000. Like that in itself might not be absolute wealth, but that still is grounds for this exact argument, unhappiness. And this is, this is for me, one of the big reasons why I think that our modern ailment with like mental health might actually be this case. Feel free to check me on this, but it's not self-inflicted, but it's self-imposed. And what, what, do you mean? I, what I mean is that our unhappiness is actually not caused by external forces. It's us seeing ourselves in relation to other people. Let's put it this way. Like, I know you're going to jump in, but you making more money than me is not you necessarily making more money to make me feel worse about myself. It's a byproduct. I want to argue that the external circumstances are unfair. Maybe unfair is the wrong word. I think that it's, I think I wrote in these notes, I wrote is really effed up. <laughs> that's, that's what I wrote. Cause I was like, didn't know how else to put it. Because I think the external factor of these ultra wealthy individuals and the disparity between them and people at the other end of the economic scale is an effed up situation. My individual unhappiness is my decision but i don't know like how do you divorce looking at something and then the decision you make about how to feel about it like i see how it works on a smaller scale like let's say you and me right like let's say you win the lottery and you win a million dollars then my decision to be unhappy about that is something i can control because you obviously did not win the lottery and then go and, you know, spend your money in order to make me upset. Yeah. Okay. So I totally am on board with that being like, I can work on my individual response mm -hmm. to like what happens to those around me. But I think on a larger scale, when we talk about the wealth disparity and the ultra rich, I think to say to someone, you just need to reframe your thinking about it is insufficient. I think we see this problem from different perspectives. I, I understand your perspective, but I guess what I'm just trying to lay out is the reality of this is that, as I mentioned, unhappiness is a byproduct of our internal identity versus it being me physically or like actually putting the pressure on you that causes the unhappiness. Now, 
I think the, the the solution to it that you're suggesting is different in that whether or not it's possible for one to solve it on their own, it doesn't change how I am presenting this challenge, if that makes sense. I guess there are two things that are concerning. One is the individual mindset, like you were saying, like mental health and the individual's well-being. And then the second thing is like, what is good for society? And I guess I can agree with you that when it comes to the individual's well-being, discovering that you have control over your decisions to be happy, what you pay attention to, how you look at yourself in comparison to others, like that's a better decision. But when it comes to what is good for society, I don't think yeah. I don't think just saying I don't think just working on yourself and your internal mindset is sufficient. Like we all can do something, I think, to try to rectify the number two thing, the, the societal situation. I understand your perspective now. I agree with that. Yeah. Like it's not what I'm saying is like it's not enough to say like, oh, you can just work on yourself it, and be happy because that doesn't fix the societal problem. Yeah, it feels like a micro macro problem, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that my solution was going to create a solution to the bigger problem. Yeah. But it is empowering, is what I guess you were trying to tell me for an individual. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, just my personal account of it was, like, it's funny because you use Hong Kong, because when I first moved to Hong Kong, I came from a place where being rich had a very different context. It was like, being rich meant that your family lived on like the west side of town and your parents had a BMW and that was the extent of it and then you move to Hong Kong and suddenly the the goalposts get moved and you soon have to like reassess well what is wealth right like even even the the clothing was way more expensive like everything just was way more expensive like no one it's not like especially I came from straight from university right mm-hmm it's not like I even knew what a Rolex was. And then you see it in your face on every street corner and you're like, hey, is this is this what I'm supposed to be going after? Yeah. If there's one thing that actually changed my mindset, it was uh, my friend Jasper Wong because he's like an artist. He's uh, He founded this really, really awesome, I guess, global mural festival. That's probably the easiest way to explain it called Pow Wow. Mm-hmm. And one thing he was always really big on was like process. And from that, I just was able to derive value from process and like intangible things. This conversation I'm having with you right now, like I wouldn't really put a price on it, I guess. I guess you could like if if someone was like, hey, can you go be here and do this for me for this much money? And I would have to reschedule this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that that's a way of looking at it. But I think that's the one thing that's really hard is like really understanding what you derive value from yeah. in because this is i mean this is the thing that's not i think some people to some people might be revelational but for me because i've had to have this discussion this internal dialogue so much uh you kind of think about it and you try to come to terms with what what you care about and why you care about it mm-hmm. probably more 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 importantly the why i mean for me interestingly since we're talking about our personal histories it was the same but opposite i left hong kong to go to university in the states and that's when i realized what hong kong is like and had to like kind of reevaluate my attitude towards wealth 
And not to say that I was like living this like really silver spoon life, but it's this idea of when you're around all these people of a certain strata of society, you just become, you forget what other ways of life are like. And like you said, like you needed to have Jasper in your life to like kind of anchor, I guess, yourself. Yeah. Crazy because that thing you said about, you know, thousand some like rich people per 1 million in, in Hong Kong, right? Yeah. The degrees of separation towards a billionaire in Hong Kong are actually pretty low. What do you mean? Like, By degrees I'm sure, of separation. I'm sure like I know someone right now that oh, knows yeah. someone's a billionaire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's, in Hong Kong especially. You probably know multiple through that. I don't know. I'm not. I don't, it's not like a. It's not like a, it's supposed to be like a, a weird flex. It's just like <laughs> that actually changed my perspective of Hong Kong, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't trying where to. Like a where like a BMW SUV was like, oh man, they're rich. <laughs> to like, oh yeah, like yeah. Anyways, yeah. Actually, but, I feel like I should throw this in when I say ultra high net worth. Like when I said it earlier, there is a real metric. It's people with assets of thirty million USD or more. So that's what we're talking about. I mean, I guess my conclusion on this after, you know, doing this reading and then talking about wealth is like, I guess, yeah, twofold. Like we said, one, I don't want to let that subconsciously influence the way I feel about work and ownership of items and value. Because I think what this article really demonstrates is like, the billionaire mindset is really screwed up. The billionaire mindset for people that aren't billionaires, you mean? Like people that strive for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't want to let that influence me even subconsciously, which means like just trying to be more alert to the way culture talks and promotes values around money. And, and then secondly, twofold, like I don't even have an answer, but I would I just wish there was something we could do about wealth disparity that isn't like obviously me going out on the street and giving out my money like i don't know what it is well you know what i think you should put like a a star beside this and we'll revisit it in one year yeah and we'll see how the landscape has changed let's do that My subject this week, which is also a two-hitter, and I hope I wasn't trying too hard to link the two, but I, I saw a parallel. But my first sort of main topic was why new technology is a hard sell. So this piece was published on Collaborative Fund, which honestly, I don't even know why I came across this. This is probably one of my newsletter finds. Uh, actually, no, I, I do remember how I found it. I think I found it on some startup newsletter. 
Anyways, this article by Morgan Husserl talks about all the different reasons why new technology is hard to adopt. The story starts off with the history of polio. So in 1952, around 3,145 Americans succumbed to polio, many of them children, and tens of thousands of people were also left reeling from its effects, including being wheelchair bound and confined to iron lungs. So if you don't know what an iron lung is, I had to look it up. It's like this apparatus where basically you're, it's almost like a mummy coffin. And its purpose is, just wait, I'm going to pull up the old Wikipedia. It's a negative pressure ventilator. That's really scary. So it's a mechanical, did you know about it from before? Yeah, but I forget how I know. Maybe something about FDR. But it's a mechanical respirator which enables a person to breathe on his or her own in a normal manner when muscle control is lost or the work of breathing exceeds the person's ability. Yeah, no, it's pretty nuts. So to continue on with the polio angle, after a vaccine was discovered, tens of millions of people lined up to get the vaccine. Here's a bunch of numbers, and I think these numbers are meant to sort of reinforce how polio vaccine adoption was an anomaly. Mm -hmm. So over the next six months of the vaccine being discovered, 57 million vaccines were administered. Over four years, 87 million vaccines were administered. In 1959, the Soviet Union vaccinated 77 million people under the age of 20. Polio is seen as a unique adoption element. Or, so vaccine. polio is seen as an outlier. Yeah. So polio. So the polio vaccine is seen as an anomaly because if you look at other new technologies, there have been much slower rates of adoption. And those include penicillin, which is also sort of in that health angle, took 20 years. And it took about 50 years, half a century, for seatbelts to become a mainstay in cars. Yeah. So this article goes on to discuss four reasons why new technology adoption is so difficult. Do you want to say at this Uh, point why you were interested? Yeah, I can tell you why I was interested. I was interested, I think I was interested in this because it clicked with the second part, the second article, and it made me really think about, in our sort of day and age, like how things become popular. Like I've always had this this fascination with it, right? But I'm just curious now like how it, it can potentially work going forward. Because I think one thing that's obviously critical is like media is a very powerful tool for messaging, but media is also very fragmented. So this these articles don't really talk about media, but it was just like these were things that were kind of spinning in my head and make me think and wonder. And ultimately when I go into the second piece, you'll understand why I'm interested to see how it can link back to this first piece. Okay, cool. Of the four reasons, uh, one of the reasons was, I don't actually want to go too much into detail because I feel like it. if you really want to know, you can read the article yourself. Number one is convincing people that you can solve their problem is harder than it seems because people don't want to be told that the way they've always done things is wrong. So everyone, yeah. generally speaking, at any given moment in time, sees the world as being better than what it was before. They don't really want to think of their routine as being obsolete in a way, right? Number two is new technologies often spark cultural shifts towards ease and convenience, which for older generations are hard to distinguish from moral decline. Now, I thought this one was probably the most interesting. Oh, I I thought so too. Yeah. So the older generation, when they see this ease and convenience, 
they feel like the younger generation aren't learning and sort of enduring this hard work that that builds sort of this moral character. It's like, well, part of it is this perception, this outdated perception of what moral character looks like. Okay. And then another part of it is a little bit of like jealousy or just feeling like you didn't do all the work I did. So you need to put in as much work in order to like get which is Get kind what of I got. weird, right? And I think I think it's kind of reason, weird. It's weird because if that becomes the reason why we exist, then it significantly affects how culture can grow and evolve. Because you kind of have yeah. someone holding you back. And I think that you saw this a lot with important factors, important topics and challenges that were being held back because whether it's the people in power, whether it's the people voting, that they generally didn't care enough about it. Like I think climate change, um, stuff like, I don't know, mm-hmm. Brexit, whatever it may be. Like I think those are examples of where potentially you saw this being played out. Yeah, it's like, I actually have an example. You know that really classic story of like the grandpa that says, when I was your age, I had to hike 10 miles through the snow to get yeah. to school. It's like that Yeah, widespread. There's actually a really good quote that goes with number two as well. One explanation is that new technology tends to make life easier for those utilizing it, and older generations watching young people avoid the day-to-day grind that they had to endure shake their heads. You are lazy is shorthand for you have technologies that let you avoid the virtue-building hard work I had to experience, which basically encapsulates what we just talked about, but I thought this was a really good quote. And Yeah. Yeah, and there's some examples. No, it is good. Uh, Cars killed the art of riding a horse. Telephones killed the art of letter writing. Cheap goods killed the art of fixing what's broken. Email killed phone conversations. Facebook killed the art of friendships, yada, yada, yada. So you kind of have like some context. Yeah, but like these statements were given by the author to kind of like illustrate that attitude. Not not that the author yeah. finds these to be true. Just like yeah. people say these things and have like nostalgia about yeah. the way things used to be done. And then number three... And point number three is familiarity is hard to distinguish from utility. So this is how we've always done it becomes synonymous with this is the best way to do it. So you see this a lot. I think adults become ingrained in their ways. Experience soon becomes sort of a driving force for the foundation behind how you do something, right? Because, oh, it worked in the past. I mean, we don't have to look any further than ourselves because I used to use Ableton to cut this podcast for the last more than like, 50, 50 no? episodes oh yeah that's right, that's right you and me i don't know yeah. when we switched over to doing it ourselves and then i finally switched to audition literally just two episodes ago and the main reason was because i don't want to learn a new thing we don't have to look any further yeah. at other adults i i am in, sitting here as an example Sometimes when I don't want to learn something new, I have to stop myself. And I have to really assess, like, why don't I, why don't I want to learn it? Yeah. yeah, it's hard to fight and sometimes. Point number four in the last one, grasping the value of new technology requires imagination. But unless you have skin in the game, that doesn't seem worth the effort because technology is supposed to make things easier and simpler, not rack your brain. When I was reading this, one thing popped into my mind, like cryptocurrencies. It just feels like it fits this to mm-hmm. a T. Uh, but basically what it means is the learning curve yeah. of technology can make things hard to adopt, right? But 
if you and I were, let's say, in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, then we would obviously have a vested interest in making this something people wanted to adopt. But the article also says that you can't blame people for that because they need a lot of evidence that their time is going to be worth it. And wouldn't you agree that maybe there is something out there that you put in the time to learn and it turns out to not be worth I've it? I've thought about that in the past because I think you guys, especially like the rest of the making team, I've, I'm pretty sure people get annoyed when you're like, hey, let's try this new service. Let's try this new software. And people are like, oh, it's another thing. Like you guys literally have a new flavor of the week of shit you want to experiment with. And I, I kind of get that, but you know what? I can say that by virtue of trying so many things out, when I do have to pick up a new task or like, let's say, I'm just going to use this as a maybe a real world example. Let's say you have a client and they're using this project management tool. If you just generally know how to navigate software and learn new software quickly, then it becomes less of an issue. Okay, but in your example, like on an individual level, you've proved the benefit, but I still stand by the fact that as a company, no, it doesn't definitely work not. because the detriment, even though we individually benefit, the detriment is that your company culture is constantly having I to relearn I definitely something. think this is why corporate SaaS, like corporate software as a service is, or just any sort of B2B business transaction is so hard to push through because there's so much friction against switching. Like you have to go and do so much research to make sure this is the right one. And you can't make a switch like a week later. All right, so my second piece, it also has some insight into the world of capitalism. But basically, what I was interested in connecting was in this Vox article called Capitalism is Turning Us into Addicts. It featured an interview with an author by the name of David T. Courtright. And David T. Courtright is a University of North Florida historian and addiction expert. And he wrote a book called The Age of Addiction, How Bad Habits Become Big Business. One thing that's really fascinating about this is that he coined this term called limbic capitalism. So limbic is in reference to a part of the brain that deals with pleasure and motivation. As our understanding of, I'm going to read this quote, as our understanding of psychology and neurochemistry has advanced, companies have gotten better at exploiting our instincts for profit. Think, for example, of all the apps and platforms specifically designed to hijack our attention with pings and dopamine hits while harvesting our data. Yeah, we talked about this before. We've talked about this. the design of apps. What I was curious about and like what I was interested to kind of like delve deeper in is knowing what you know about user behavior can this sort of limbic capitalism be applied to accelerate the growth of technology adoption? Mm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Like ba- Basically, let's put it this way. Things like polio. Let me just put out a really dystopian future, right? Let's, but a dystopian future. Well, is it dystopian if there's a positive slant to it? I don't know. But let's say hypothetically... <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think like I'm thinking on okay, the fly just, right now. Just paint just paint me this picture of the future. It's 136 AM right here. I'm trying to Okay, I'm okay, okay. To, what, okay. So what let's is put the this picture way. of the future? What is your future? What happens if someone could apply limbic capitalism? whether or not the capitalistic element of a company making money needs to be at the forefront, 
just the learnings of limbic capitalism and applied it to certain things. So let's say hypothetically, limbic capitalism could be reappropriated so that people recycle, right? Right. That's Do what I'm trying to- Do things that are good for society. That's what you're trying to say. Does that open sort of a can of worms around the ethics around it? Probably, no. actually. You don't think so? No, 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 no. I don't think so, because I think it's like what happens already, right? It's just it that just... capitalism is so much quicker at figuring out how to hide, because they're motivated by money. Yeah. They figured out how to hijack people, and they do that way more quicker than whatever initiative is trying to encourage recycling. But anyways, that's what I was thinking about. But Anna. yeah, it could happen. I just, I don't know who is actually going to do that. The thing is, is that limbic capitalism exists because your exact reason for wanting to engage in the limbic part is because you can make money off of it. So you would mm -hmm. have to, you would have to convert the capitalistic reward to like, oh, this is a community. This is a global community benefit reward. Yeah. And who's going to yeah. undertake that? I don't know. Yeah. Good yeah. question. That's a good way to put it. Essentially, you have to convert the value of money into the value of doing the moral thing. And I think the one, the one really underlying tough. thing. Well, the thing that, we, that was introduced in your topic is actually one thing why I'm so bearish on us actually making a significant improvement in climate change it's because mm. as humans <laughs> it's it's really hard for us to think i'm going to forego some pleasure some convenience something today so that someone that i will never meet two generations five generations a hundred generations down the line will reap the benefits yeah except that the conversation around climate change is switching to change from the things that used to make us feel good, like buying more stuff, to, I guess, a mix of shame and feeling good about yourself if you do the things that further the cause for, like, saving the planet. Does that make sense? Like, climate change might actually be in the process of what you said, like, tapping into the limbic part of the brain. Yeah. I mean, there's just one last quote in this Vox piece I want to read. That's another thing about addictive behaviors. They don't simply provide reward, they also provide conditioning. Smartphone technologies arguably accomplish this better than any device or product in human history. It's thinking about how the limbic capitalism angle is also about conditioning. Yeah, I mean, they talk about it, this is probably an easier term to wrap your head around than limbic capitalism. They talk about it as an addiction, is that we've We've been coerced into becoming addicted to all of these different kinds of things because of the engine of capitalism. And so yeah. I guess you're saying, like, could we re-gear society so that we were actually addicted to things that were good for society? Uh, nervous laugh over here. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I have no answer. I have no, that's like the same question I asked at the end of my subject. Like, how do we, how, what do we do as individuals to fix wealth disparity? No clue. At the end of your subject, how do we change society so that we're addicted to actually doing the things that are good for us? Also no clue. Just sit here being like, oh, everything is generally crap. That, that's my conclusion. 
today. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is a really practical thing on the subject of limbic capitalism. But I turn off a lot of my notifications. And I would definitely recommend everyone to just go through their notification settings and be like experimental with purging notification settings. You know what I would like to see, and iOS still hasn't done it, is just a mark all is red across mm. every app. Like, why haven't they done that yet? Limbic capitalism? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yep, that's it from us, I think. I have to say, I thought today's episode was pretty good considering the circumstances. Oh, me too. Maybe we should do more post-midnight. I mean, I'm more awake. That's because you got me at, like, my prime time. Okay, so even though we did a recording literally two days ago, do you have a revelation? I'm trying to think which one I want to pick. Oh, oh, here's my revelation. Okay, this is an easy one. If you have something creative to do and you've set aside X number of minutes or hours, I think it's sometimes better to just double it. Oh, that's a good one. That's practical. I think that as much as I want to feel as though I can get a, something creative done in, let's say, 60 minutes, it usually takes me more than 60 minutes for sure. Like without without fail. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because creative work tends to not have a definitive finish line. Or maybe it's because we routinely underestimate how much time it takes to do anything. It could be both. In terms of the the lack of a finish line, it means that, I think it's just like by virtue of us recognizing it, that you've been in a position where you've revisited it, let's say eight hours later, and you're like, oh, I want to make these changes. And it you feel a lot better about it. So I think that yeah. time to, to breathe is what's, what's really important. I mean, it's so true that you should always get started on something earlier when it's creative. So you have time to edit. What's your revelation? I was reading the beginning of a magazine article just casually. I was casually browsing through a magazine. This is not the key point. The author was talking about how she had just finished writing a book and she was going to take a one month hiatus, essentially, like entire 30 days of not working. The rest of the article was about why it is that we don't allow ourselves to have as much leisure time as we used to. And apparently in the States, there used to be this quote where you had eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, and eight hours to do with whatever you will. Except that now it's really like 16 hours work. Actually, probably it's like 20 hours work, four hours sleep, whatever it is. Anyway. Oh, that's actually a really good breakdown, even though it makes... So much sense. Rest, work, I'm play. <laughs> I like whatever you will a little bit more than play because it can be, you know, your side projects or learning something else, which made me feel just so much better about the next two months of my life, which are really just dedicated to this MA, which as you know, I've been putting a lot of other things just like intentionally aside in order to focus on it. I was just feeling... Just reading those couple of paragraphs, I was feeling good about this decision to be like, no, Sharice, it is okay that you're not earning money and that you're sleeping a full eight hours every night so that you can have the energy to devote to finishing your master's. And this is also super relevant to today's subject. That was another cliche that you can apply to your life. Isn't it a cliche? Idiom? 
Okay, that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Charisse at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up.